Welcome to the World Football Summit podcast, the show for football industry leaders who want to stay ahead of the game. We bring you the latest insights, trends, and stories from the experts driving innovation and progress in sports business worldwide. Join us as we dive deep into the ideas and initiatives transforming the world of football. From sustainability and innovation to player development, fan engagement, and everything in between. Our goal is to unite the global football industry and drive positive change and progress. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the World Football Summit podcast. I'm your host, Jaime, CMO at World Football Summit. Today, we welcome Daniel G to the show for a great overview of the sports soft landscape in the football industry. Daniel has had an amazing career in the industry, including club takeovers, high-profile transfers, commercial endorsement deals, and disputes. He's also an author, and we get to talk about his new book, Build the Invisible. In general, we explore the way to actually grow and develop as a professional in the football industry. The key topics of the conversation include the new FIFA aging regulations and their impact on the overall industry, the process and lessons learned from writing his books, Done Deal, and Build the Invisible. He also shares advice for those looking to enter and grow in the football industry. Finally, we get to talk about his experience at industry events like World Football Summit and how they help people grow and develop in the industry. This conversation has a little bit of everything, and I hope you enjoy as much as I did. But before we dive into the episode, I want to remind you that World Football Summit Europe is just around the corner on September 20th and 21st. Will you be joining us? Don't miss out on the chance to shape the future of football. Head over to www.worldfootballsummit.com and buy your tickets right now. Again, that's www.worldfootballsummit.com. You can also subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes. And be sure to check it out if you want to stay up to date with the latest industry trends, the dynamics that are shaping the industry, and everything that goes on at our events. Now, let's welcome Daniel G. Well, Daniel, finally, after all this time, we finally made this happen. Welcome to the show. Thank you. We've had we've had our technological issues, haven't we, over the last few weeks? But I'm glad to say we've both been happy to persevere and have this conversation. So thanks for your patience as well. Well, you know what they say: good things, when things come to those who wait, right? And I think the audience is in for a treat on this one. So before going into it, Daniel, um, I know you can tell us a little bit about yourself, and I guess curious. Why is it that you do when you do? Well, uh, it's a good open-ended question. Um, so the short answer is I'm um, a sports and football lawyer. Um, it's a, uh, a law firm in, in London um, called Sheridan's. Um, I tend to work with uh, football players, agents, um, and high net worth individuals who sort of buy, uh, have ownership stakes in football clubs. But mainly on the agents and player side, I work on the transfers, uh, contract renegotiations, uh, image rights deals, endorsement uh, related agreements, reputation management, disputes that happen between different parties, disciplinary matters, regulations. Um, I'm sure I've missed out a few things, but um, yeah, they're the they're the type of that's the type of work I work um, in football. But um, it hasn't always been that way. Um, I've been in the industry for over 20 years now, or the legal industry for that, and for. A decent amount of my time when I was starting off in the profession, I was working across lots and lots of different sectors. If it was agriculture, auto parts, 
uh, aviation, financial services. So probably fair to say I've got quite a lot of experience of working across lots of different sectors in truth. With that, then, well, Daniel, the, the, the reason you're here um, is, you know, to talk about the uh, book you just published, uh, Build the Invisible. Um, now, before that, you published a book called Dandir. Difference being, Dandil is more centered on the football industry and the transfer market as a whole, whereas building invisible is more about building a career in sports. And so, so what's what motivated you to write these books? Well, um, taking it a little bit in chronological order, when I um, was starting off in the industry and trying to work across sports and, and specifically football. Um, what I'd started to do over quite a long time was to uh, write a football law blog on my website where I'd written about the various, you know, cases. If it was um, Carlos Tevez and Javier Mascherano, if it was about Nicolas Anelka, if it was about John Terry, if it was the numerous cases involving Luis Suarez, um, if it involved take takeovers at particular clubs and other types of disputes. Um, I then had a sort of collection of three maybe two, three, four hundred um, blogs and guest posts that I'd written across the internet. And I remember one of my journalist friends who every now and then would ask me for a quote to go in one of their new newspaper columns. Um, why don't you just collate all of these points and all of these blogs and all of these stories and um, put them into some type of compendium, some type of book? And I, I was a bit like, well, I don't really know where to start. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he introduced me to his book agent, who is now my book agent, even though it seems, seems strange to even say that. Um, and um, we managed to get um, a book deal with, um, you know, Bloomsbury, who, you know, one of the, the, the most highest profile and, you know, fantastic um, sports, um, or rather book publishing companies who obviously work with J.K. Rowling and, um, and so many esteemed um, authors. So it was incredible to get a deal with such a, um, a great publishing house. And and then I had to spend the next about three years writing it. That was sort of alongside um, my day job at Sheridan's, um, having one daughter who was just born and another one um, on the way soon after. Um, and, you know, having to write 85,000 words over sort of weekends and, and evenings after, after work. So it was, it was a, 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 a fantastically difficult challenge, if that's the right way to say it. Uh, hard work, but worth it, obviously. And you know, on the whole, everyone's been really positive about it because I, the way I sold it to the publisher was that I wanted to try and write the book that no one had really written before about the industry, which was, this is how it works. This is what a contract is. You know, this is actually what goes on behind the scenes um, and try to understand all those different parts of, um, you know, the football industry. Whereas what then that led me to do with Building Visible in a way was because I'd had the confidence, I think, of being able to write a book that people had enjoyed. Um, it hopefully meant that uh, I could write well enough, even though I still always feel, you know, is the book good enough? You know, have I written it well? Has it, you know, has it come across well? Um, simply because, you know, whenever um, I, I had been speaking with people that want to get into the sports industry, the entertainment space, you know, music, TV, film, entertainment, whatever the space might be, the industry, you know, everyone was sort of asking, oh, how did you get into the football industry, Daniel? How did you go about doing it? And um, instead of giving, you know, small micro answers, which don't really help or help a little bit, but not in the same way that I'd hoped to, um, I thought, what better way to actually then write a book and put the framework together of 
things that have worked for me, things that have worked with a lot of my clients that I interviewed for the book um, and try and develop a bit of more of a, a comprehensive pathway. I think you're going to have to tell me the secret of how you manage with, with the kids because I have a little baby of my own and I just struggle with that. Um, and we're going to go into the detail of the book, but I also want to take advantage here um, to talk about one of the topics that's um, kind of trending right now in the industry, which is the, the agent regulations. You know, I've heard you talk about it on the podcast, which um, I recommend the audience to, to check it out as well, because it's very, very informative and, and you, you learn a lot from that. Um, so before going into the topics, uh, FIFA recently introduced these regulations. Um, I don't know if, you know, maybe very briefly, you can uh, explain why they are for those who, who don't really know what we're talking about. Of course. Um, well, the, the long and short of it is um, before 2015, FIFA the football's world governing body um, regulated um, the activities of agents. They're obviously the people that help broker and negotiate deals on behalf of their players. And then in 2015, up until relatively recently, the last few months, um, uh, what effectively happened is FIFA said, well, we're not going to regulate the industry anymore. We're going to leave it to the national associations to do. Um, I think FIFA in retrospect realized that was probably a mistake. And... Um, they have put in place a new set of regulations, which to a lot of people are quite controversial in a number of ways. And the most controversial, I guess, is uh, what there are a number of legal challenges on the horizon and have actually occurred at present relates to um, the agent commission cap, which effectively means that um, a player agent can only um, effectively earn up to 6% um, of the player's basic gross salary um, uh, for the services that they are being provided. Um, the, the, an agent can also work for a club, uh, which actually is possibly more lucrative where the player, sorry, the agent can then earn up to 10% of um, the transfer fee of the, uh, the amount actually um, uh, agreed to between the different clubs. And there's lots of other controversial elements around um, who has to pay the player's agent, around transparency, around um, how much um, FIFA is going to tell um, lots of different people and stakeholders about how much the deal was worth. There's lots of issues around um, the circumvention of the rules about whether agents can then earn more money in other parts of the deals. And so at present, there are a number of cases across Germany, England now, I believe Italy, and then Switzerland, and probably a number of other member states around um, whether these regulations are anti-competitive, they break the competition rules. Um, and then what happens as a result. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, I mean, those are kind of like the topics that I want to cover very briefly, you know, because um, I think it's going to give people like a, a good view of, of what's going on and, and why it's important for the industry as a whole, you know, um, with, with the first one being um, the, the commission cap, right, that you mentioned. Um, so um, can you explain briefly why is it that you can actually earn more if you're working for the selling club versus the player or the buying club? Yeah, um, I, I didn't want to overcomplicate it, but we can definitely get into the detail a little bit now, which is what FIFA have said is that um, a player representing, um, a pl uh, sorry, an agent representing a player can earn 3% acting for the uh, player and then 3% acting for the buying club, which makes 6% in total. That's the only instance where the agent can act for more than one party. The issue is, is that FIFA have also said at the same time that if a selling club 
um, also is engaged in a transaction, in a, a transfer or a renegotiation or yeah, a transfer, then the selling club can pay the agent up to 10% of the transfer fee that they receive. So to a lot of people, the, 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 the new opportunity to a degree is don't worry about players. Don't worry about dealing with their day-to-day. Don't worry about having to deal with all the stuff that comes with um, looking after the player. Uh, be on best term relationships with a number of the bigger clubs and um, and potentially earn more commission um, on that side. And and that's one of the interesting issues that um, I, I think the European courts are going to have to consider to a degree is firstly, whether FIFA's intervention in the market is justified, proportionate, um, and uh, sort of um, uh, has at least enough justification where we will see that but also about why there is that disparity between um, uh, a percentage from the selling club and then a percentage um, for the buying club and the player as well. And, and what about the exam, Daniel? Um, as you know, FIFA is also asking agents to pass an exam. What are your thoughts on that requirement? Do, do you think it's going to be, you know, um, it's going to create a lot of impact for the for the, for the world? Oh, it definitely is. And it already is happening now. So, you know, if everything goes to plan with FIFA, then, um, you know, that there, there has already been one um, exam window earlier in the summer, a spring summer. There will be another one in September, and then the regulations come in at the beginning of October. Um, so, if you were an agent before 2015 and you passed the previous exam, you get a um, a legacy pass into the new regulations uh, to to become a registered um, agent again. Um, but ultimately, a lot of agents, intermediaries at present, won't pass the exam, may not even um, apply to take the exam in the first place. And that's because it is quite difficult. Um, we've done quite a lot of agent training um, over the last uh, six to nine months or so. Um, there's lots of online courses doing similar things. And, and the pass rate is 75%, so it's a high threshold effectively. So out of 20 questions, you have to get 15 right. Um, the issue for some has been whether it's possible to even for the exam is one hour and um, to even go through and do well to be able to uh, read the question and sometimes understand the question and then work out some answers that may you know fundamentally confuse um, in three minutes so sometimes that um, ability to go through those questions and answers is is difficult and also the other point more generally being is that from uh Next, well, next year after this exam window, there will be two more opportunities to pass the exam. But the year after, there will only, my understanding is, be one opportunity per year for the agent to pass the exam if they still want to do it. So um, there's there's lots of issues. I mean, do do I think fundamentally it's important for an agent to pass an exam? Yes, I think I think an agent should have um, a fundamental understanding of the main FIFA regulations and possibly national regulations too. Um, but, um, you know, there are some questions and queries over, you know, how easy is the exam to pass? Sh- should this in fact be easy or otherwise, or should it contain a challenge? Um, but also about um, whether there's been enough uh, time for agents to be able to revise enough to be able to understand what the types of questions will be and all of the usual sort of practicalities. And do you think these measures, because I'm thinking, been a big, uh, you know, advocate for of transparency and accountability in in the industry, right? Do you think these all these measures support that? Um, well, I don't think transparency and accountability are the main drivers for the regulations. I could be wrong, um, 
I know that, for example, FIFA have argued in various um, uh, court proceedings that they want to make the industry more transparent. They want to be able to um, effectively take, uh, they, they think agents have too much power, um, too much um, bargaining position, um, and therefore exploit particular situations. I'm I'm not totally in agreement with that, but that's, you know, everyone's um, view and everyone's got um, a certain um, assessment to be made. The, 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 the points around transparency are interesting because um, one of the regulations relates to actually disclosure by FIFA of the commission amounts that are received by the agents. Now, there's a question mark around whether they will be made completely public for everybody to know or whether they will only be made public to a select amount of people on the FIFA portal or elsewhere, who knows about that particular point at the moment. My issue there in a way is that there is likely, I'd have thought to be um, privacy, security, data protection issues um, for disclosure of such large amounts. You know, if I was an agent that I received a lot of money on a particular deal, I'm not sure I'd want to have the world know about um, you know, which country I'm from, how much I've earned, when the amount's going to be paid, et cetera. And also in truth, the other thing that um, I think everyone needs to be a bit careful about is that if you know what 6% of the agent's fee, uh, what the agent's fee is, which is 6% of the player's amount, then you can very easily reverse engineer and then work out every what every player is earning effectively, which I'm not sure is the aim of the, the regulations either. I guess I'm curious, um, who benefits most from is it the agents themselves? Is it the players? Is it the teams? Does anybody win with this? Well, it it, it always depends how you frame things. Um, I, I don't think there would be too many people that would say a reasonable proportionate set of regulations that FIFA were wanting to bring in would cause too many issues. Obviously, it's always in the detail that is the, the issue. Now, um, and I don't think at the same time, most agents would say, well, we actually need to be regulated right. We need to have the exam. We need CPD. We need to be able to be trained well in order to do our job. So at face value, I don't think many have too much of an issue with a regulated system that works well for everybody. Now, whether there is an advantage for clubs saying, well, uh, it helps us now because we only have to um, pay parts or pay part or, or pay on behalf of the club or pay for club services, a particular capped commission, there's a query that it doesn't necessarily help the industry too much because actually it's only the bigger agencies that could potentially um, uh, subsidize the smaller deals because actually it becomes relatively unprofitable for smaller agencies who only have maybe players at the lower edges of the, the leagues or otherwise to actually do deals that make it worthwhile for the agents to actually make a living. So th there's, there's, counterintuitive issues around every single point. Is it better for agents? It might be better for some agents because they might be able to pick up players because other agents aren't going to pass the exam. It probably is worse for the agents in lots of ways also because their commission is going to be capped in so many different ways. Is it better for the clubs in some ways? Yes, it can be, but um, there, there may also be problems with the player side because the player now suddenly has to start paying. So they are having to pay their agents out of their net salary which means they might be worse off as well. So um, some have argued that, you know, ultimately the, the main beneficiaries of this are FIFA to a degree, um, as they re-regulate the industry, um, they have a greater hold over the way that international transfers are done from 
the clearinghouse, from the FIFA agents regulations, from, you know, obviously all of the work that they do for the different World Cups and FIFA uh, tournaments. And now the Club World Cup as well, which obviously is going to be expanded come 2025. So there's a lot of people that think actually this is um, another um, positive, negative, however you want to say, increasingly um, increased role for FIFA um, in the wider football space across lots of different landscapes. Yeah, so it's interesting. There's no clear winner here, so we'll just have to see how this rolls out. And then if this in a few years' time changes again. Um, but anyway, thank you for that review, Daniel. I think it was very uh, informative. I think uh, the audience is going to learn. Um, I want to shift gears now and talk about uh, Building Invisible. Let's talk a little bit about the book. And what stood out to me is, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you interviewed 40 sports industry professionals. Um, so I guess I'm curious, uh, is there any common patterns that you identified in these leaders or... Is there anything that surprised you most during these interviews? Um, lots. I think there's, there's always things and patterns and consistency that you can look for. But I, I think the thing that stood out the most uh, probably were two things. The, the first is all of these people get things done. Um, and what I mean by that is a lot of people talk a really, really good game, but never actually implement or never actually do. And um, the thing that I almost have a chat with all of them about is almost like this um, impatience is always seen as a bad thing sometimes, impatient to do the thing or otherwise. A lot of the, a lot of the people that I spoke to had an impatience to get things done, um, which I think on the whole is the positive side of um, yeah, not getting things done quickly enough. It's almost a, a need to accomplish um, something which I found really interesting actually. The, the other thing um, alongside that was um, they regularly acknowledge uh, that things haven't gone very well for them at different times. Um, so if you want to call it um, being more vulnerable to when things haven't gone well and failing and having to pick yourself up or making mistakes or otherwise, or um, accepting that mistakes and things going wrong are very natural and normal occurrences, um, you know, one of my friends who um, uh, works as uh, the main lawyer at a very big broadcasting company who works across media and sports and TV and film said, he said to me, um, failing, failure was never an issue because I'd already done it, which I found quite illuminating, actually. It's okay because I, I, I haven't, it hasn't gone swimmingly before, which means when it doesn't go swimmingly again for all lots of different reasons, for things in my control and out of my control, that I know I'll be able to deal with it. Uh, so a sort of confidence when things don't go to plan. And I also had another um, friend and high-profile chief exec who was the ex-chief executive of uh, Portsmouth Football Club. Um, he'd uh, worked in a very senior position at Sport Radar, for example, the, the sports betting at the sports data company. And um, he, he had said that when he is recruiting across the, the leadership um, um, you know, spectrum, he is looking for what he called failure signposts. So he was looking in people's CVs and covering letters for things that obviously didn't go to plan and then how they dealt with it. Because he said sometimes the worst problem that he faces on the recruitment side 
is when he's recruiting younger people or, or mid-level executives who whose lives have gone very swimmingly and relatively easily. So that when the first sign of challenge or problems or issues that come up, and they always come up, how have people coped? How have people dealt with it? How do they deal with all of the the difficulty that arises as a result? Which goes back to my friend Josh's point, which is if you've already done it and you've got over the other side, you're probably going to have more confidence in your ability to be able to get over the next thing and the next issue and the next problem. So I really like the first idea of positive impatience and the second thing um, around um, sort of failure signposts. Um, there was a sentence I heard a few weeks back, which was something like, and I might be butchering this, but it was something like, um, always content, never satisfied. Which is, you know, um, you know, be happy with what you have, but always trying to look for more. And I really like that's a piece of uh, the two takeaways you took, which is getting things done, which I think it's it's crucial. And also the fact that we need to embrace vulnerability. Sorry. Um, and it actually comes back to a conversation I had with uh, Agustina Giovanni in the podcast. She's the uh, mental training specialist at DC United at the MLS. And she said the same thing. So it's, it's kind of nice to see that, uh, you know, industry leaders are kind of like thinking commonly about these topics. Um, and, and I also uh, wanted to bring you on because obviously I don't get the same, um, level of requests as probably you do of, uh, people looking to enter the industry. And, um, I don't know if you have some general advice, uh, that you would look to offer those who are listening to build a successful career in, in the industry. Well, the first advice I'd give is read the book. Uh, the second piece of advice I would give, um, well, is is as follows, without spoiling the book, because um, that's the whole point, I guess, really. I'll give enough teasers. Um, th there's a few important substantive foundational elements to, to all of this. And none of it is rocket science. And all of it is relative common sense but it is still difficult for people to be able to do it for lots of different reasons. And the combination is always as follows. It is knowledge building plus routine making, adding in building relationships, and then scaling that consistently over time leads to positive outcomes. And we can take each one of those in turn if you want, but I'll leave it to you to see which ones you want to investigate further into. All of them, but I don't know, we're going to have time because I wouldn't get so many questions. Uh, but honestly, I think um, that's awesome feedback. And, and it goes back to the point about what you were saying before, getting things done. Right. I mean, not but then, hey, you really need to do stuff. You need to uh, start creating a routine. You have to build a relationship, which also work in itself, and then you have to scale it up. Um, and I guess, yeah, um, I do want to talk about the networking and the relationship building, um, because I think that's a key point. Obviously we can all bring something to the table, but, um, I'm not sure. And I'm not sure people understand, um, exactly what, what that means or how to do that effectively. Um, so I don't know if you can share some advice on, on how to do that. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I'm going to say next is, uh, it's counterintuitive. You help yourself by helping others. Um, and you do that by not thinking about a relationship like a transaction, which is 
I need to get to know this person because I need to know how she can help me or how he can help me. You need to think about the mindset of developing a relationship with someone firstly and ideally to think about ways that you can help leverage um, that person to do good things. How can I help that person achieve? And usually you start off that process not by talking very much if you can help it. So part of the chapter of one of the, the book uh, of the one of the chapters of building visible is all around listening better. Um, and usually the reason why you need to listen better is obviously because uh, you need to get to know the other person well. And also because then you deepen the relationship by the intelligence and the information that you can glean from that conversation too. And also because the, the fundamental point usually is, is if you can get somebody talking to you about themselves and about the great things that they are doing, the interesting projects that they are working on, the fascinating topics that um, make up part of their day, or the great achievements that they have managed to undertake. Again, it's a straightforward point, but everybody loves talking about themselves. And I mean that in a, a positive way, just in the same way that I really appreciate, Jamie, that you are asking me about my insights for things because part of my ego is really enjoying talking about the book and um, the things that I have going on. So I can certainly see the irony in what I'm saying as well. But the point is this, once you start developing relationships with people and you garner intelligence and you leave people with the sense that they really enjoyed that conversation with you, they're more than happy to have the next conversation with you in due course as well. And you build on the intelligence that you um, had from that person. You think about how you might be able to help them. You consider how you could join the dots and build connections with others. And then, as you exactly as you said, Jamie, just before, you start playing a different game. But the game effectively is thinking how to help the other. And you do that by doing it with five people and then by 50 people. And then, as you can imagine, you layer it and scale accordingly. And it's a very difficult thing to do well. Uh, that's why there are incredibly complex CRM systems out there um, for people to be able to build relationships with, to track them, to follow up with, to remind them to do that and everything that flows from it. So if I recap just on the relationship side, the most important thing to build that rapport is to listen well, to think about how you can help the other person and then in time build a good enough relationship with them that they enjoy speaking to you because not only are you thinking about them, but along with the first part of the equation, Jamie, that I was talking about before, you're continually building your knowledge, uh, your industry knowledge on all of the topics that they are probably experts in as well. So then you start bringing in discussion points. Oh, I read this article on this particular thing. It was interesting because of this thing. What, what do you think on that? Or, for example, the way that you follow up with that person in three weeks' time is when you're doing your daily knowledge building, then you send them a WhatsApp just saying, 
oh, I read this article. I thought you'd really like it. Let me know what you think. And bit by bit, you know, nuance, conversation and relationship, you start putting the foundations of relationships together. And you do that at the same time as knowledge building. And the third part that we talked about obviously is scale, but you go about doing it. I have this great phrase that um, someone said to me, they said, consistency over intensity. And I completely agree. Consistency is always underrated and intensity is always overrated. And you consistently do all of those things for 10 minutes every day, not just once every month. And you do that and you develop those habits of relationship building, of starting to build knowledge, and then you do it at scale. And then somebody one day after you started to get some success asks you, oh, how did you go about doing that overnight? And you tell them, actually, it's not. It's 20 years in the making because of all of those small, consistent, invisible, tiny steps that you've taken uh, to get to where you got to so far. You know what they say, that overnight success takes years to right? right? Um, that was amazing advice, Daniel, and thank you for that. There were so many ideas that were just uh, rolling through my mind. And um, what you said is true. Uh, and I want to credit a framework I heard from Category Pirates, where basically at the foundation, when you start editing your knowledge, which is your, your first step, you start reading and you just start listening. You start talking to people. Um, that's where you're going to start get, you know, then you're going to be able to filter and curate a lot of the content and a lot of the information. And then up at, at one point, you're going to become the one that's actually creating that content based on all the knowledge that you have, right? There's actually a next phase on that knowledge building. And the next phase is actually, I think, the most important. It's basically the critical mass whereby all of the different things that you don't think have connections are actually all connected. And that's what I find the most, that, that's where people are at their most creative and productive. It's not by luck that all of these executives understand the industry. It's because they're able to connect thousands and thousands of knowledge dots in order to so deeply understand the foundational elements of an industry and then build creatively on top that gives people the real value that they can add to their particular issue. Well, Steve Jobs said it in his famous uh, speech, no? You always end up connecting the dots. Sometimes you don't understand uh, things that go on, but down the line, things suddenly start to click and connect, and it just happens. Uh, and, you know, that happened to me. Actually, I, I mean, kind of like the personal story here, I don't want to bore you with it, but I basically had my own newsletter. And out of that uh, newsletter, uh, one of the subscribers was Jen Alissi, director of World Book Summit. And he ended up liking one of my comments, and then that ended up having me here, uh, speaking to you. You know what I mean? Years after. So that's just it. It's kind of like, you know, you see how the dots start to connect themselves. So, so it couldn't be more. Well, I'm going to say one more point on that, which is one of my other interviewees said exactly that. She said to me that her aim is to create as many opportunity windows as possible. So because you never can see beyond the opportunity that hasn't happened yet. But what you can do is put lots and lots and lots of opportunities or lots of things out there for people in order to grab hold of.
And sometimes you just need one thing, which then changes the trajectory, which then leads to five other things that happen. So I'm always concerned when people say, oh, I've just done this one thing and it might lead to this or it might not. When actually I think the aim, it's like, uh, again, a very common knowledge is don't put all your eggs in one basket, which is, you know, conceptually makes sense, which is the opposite of all your eggs in one basket is lots of eggs in lots of baskets, presumably, um, which is, you know, depressurize yourself, create these opportunity windows, make sure you have constantly lots of different things going on to create the best environment for the right outcome to occur. And you always have to believe strongly that they will happen. You know, that's kind of like also part of the, I mean, it's not, it's being a um, realistic optimist, let's say, right? Yep. In a way. And and speaking of networking, um, you, you've had the opportunity to be at, um, you know, industry events, conferences, like World Football Summit, for example, a few years ago. Um, what is the importance of these events for, um, for, for networking and, and relationship? Massive. So World Football Summit was my first event post-COVID. Um, and I would always be really grateful that the event went on at that time because, you know, I hadn't been to a networking event for, well, two and a half years. Could it have been two and a half years? Yeah, 20, yeah, 20. Because of 21, right? Which is a, yeah. a pandemic. And, you know, Sorry, one and a half years. Exactly. So, you know, the, the ability for us humans to be able to connect in person, I understand we're on, uh, you know, technology, but that's the benefit of technology that we're using now. But in person, it's hugely, massively underrated. I always think that my idea in order to build a digital relationship is to ensure that it gets me to a place where I can meet somebody for a coffee. And that's the, the bottom line. Now, when we have events like um, uh, WFS that allow me then to be able to connect with people beforehand and say, oh, I'm going to be in Madrid for this event, or I'm going to be in Sevilla in three weeks time. The, the ability for everything and everybody to be in one place at one time, not only from an efficiency perspective is very useful, but also because you get to chat. If you do it right, I think you get to always chat with people that firstly you plan to meet, but usually that you don't plan to meet and you're at the bar for a beer or for a tea or a lunch, or somebody notices your name tag and says, oh, can we have a quick chat about this? It effectively fast tracks people to be able to know how to be able to interact with people. And that's the key to life is the truth without getting too philosophical. Ultimately, you're only as good as your ability to be able to develop relationships face-to-face -face relationships with people that ultimately will lead to trust, which will lead to reciprocity, which will lead to um, people thinking about you and for you thinking about them. And the conferences are then, I agree, they can sometimes be quite daunting because there's so many people and there's so many people then that you don't know. But the great thing is everybody is at that conference to speak about, to speak to people at that conference. So I've still never met or I've never had a conversation where someone has just said, hi, Daniel, nice to meet you. How, how is the conference going? I've still never seen one person say, oh, 
I don't want to speak to you because I'm at a conference. It's, you know, it sounds counterintuitive, but that's always everyone's worry that you don't know anybody and no one wants to speak to you. I could only say from my positive experience, especially um, in Madrid a few years ago, is it was such a great atmosphere and a great environment. And it led to lots of great conversations that I had, including lots of different students asking for me advice. So if no other reason, it got me it got me to try and think, I need to finish this book because I think it will be useful for some people to... to... Well, I'm going to have to write you down for a coffee here. Yeah. We're full of summit in Sevilla. We're probably going to have to invite Tom, uh, you know, Good. connected us. Uh, and I think we're going to have a good conversation. And I agree to you. And now I'm not serious. And I think um, what you get out of these in-person events is just uh, uh, you've accelerated any type of conversation. Um, Daniel, I want to be respectful for your time. And I just have a few uh, rapid fire questions that I want to ask you before we close off. Um, first, are there three skills you would highlight for anybody who's trying to build their um, career in the sports industry that, that they should have? Well, they're all counterintuitive in a way, because when you put them in isolation, they sound like they shouldn't work together, but hopefully they do. The first is patience. You've just got to have confidence it will happen for you in the long term. You've also got to be proactive, which means, and I think you can do both at the same time. I think you can be proactive to take as many steps as you can to try and get the thing to happen. And I think that fits in with patience because you feel, so long as you feel like you're moving forward with all of the steps you're taking, I think you feel better about realizing that it might not happen in the short to medium term. So I think patience, proactivity, um, and honestly, I think the last bit, it's so boring, but so important is just do the thing for 15 minutes a day, every day. It is so hard to do. And, and I don't mean by the thing, I mean, read three articles about the industry every day for the next one year. And, you know, it's incredibly hard to do for 365 days straight, never mind one month, never mind one week. But that's the challenge to set yourself because like we talked about before, it means that you're going to start having really interesting things to say to people. Um, and it also means that your knowledge is going to absolutely blossom. If that's reading, if it's listening, if it's watching, or if it's a combination of everything of those. It just compounds over time. And and that's pretty much how it goes. Uh, and, and to your point, it's getting a habit of doing it consistently. You said it before, right? consistency over intensity and that's kind of like the framework that that uh you know i think everybody should adopt and i really like your advice uh in a way i've heard it from other industry leaders and really understand that sometimes the journey is actually the reward so it goes back to what you were saying you have to be patient uh but you also have to do things to make that journey actually happen um so yeah thank you thanks for that daniel and, and overall thank you for for the conversation um and then um I don't know. I guess I want to ask you because you've worked in very interesting cases. Um, you've talked to very interesting people for, you know, both your professional um, endeavors were for the book. Um, so I don't know. Would you be able to highlight a moment in your career you're most proud of? Oof. You know, as lawyers, we're, and lots of people generally, is all I would say is I give the advice to a lot of people all the time, but I don't necessarily do it myself. Is 
sometimes it's really important to celebrate the small things rather than the big things. Um, you know, you do a good transfer or you have a good result for your client or, you know, a matter is resolved that you otherwise wouldn't have done with hopefully without your help. So look, there are on the surface, lots of big transfers or high profile things that I've been lucky enough to be involved with. But the truth is, is that the thing that usually makes me proud, proudest is when the client picks the phone up to me after a little bit and says, I need your help with something new. Because what that tends to hopefully say is, I'm relying on you, Daniel, and you've done a good job in the past. And I think you're going to do another good job for me in the future. So the pride, I guess, is in my ability to hopefully deliver for, you know, the people that I work with. Um, again, regardless of what the matter is, if it's a high profile transfer, or if it's a, a very small matter that still has a very big consequence for a player or an agent or whatever else it might be. So again, sorry, long answer for a short question. But it's a good answer. And I really liked it because you actually went to trust again. You didn't go into a technical case. You didn't go into a high profile case. So I'm good to trust. And I think that's something that, um, uh, that people should uh, learn from. That sometimes it's more than the call it professional uh, reward that you get out of, out of this, right? Um, and you can apply it to an industry at the end of the day. Daniel, thank you. I think, at least for me, the wait uh, was definitely worth it. Uh, before we go, um, where can listeners learn more about you, uh, about books? Where can people buy the book, uh, which I highly recommend, and any other project that you want to highlight? No, thank you, Jamie. So, yeah, I mean, people can just go to my website, which is imaginatively named um, danielg.com. Um, where I've got, you know, all the links to the various books, but to be fair, more than anything else, they can read to their heart's content on the various blogs and listen to all the podcasts I've done on the, the sort of Dan and Omar show and on various Build the Invisible podcasts as well. Um, and then I'm on Twitter and Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, TikTok, even though I don't dance or sing on TikTok, you'd be pleased to know. Um, and, uh, that, yeah, that's. That's probably about there. I mean, hopefully we can maybe even do something um, at the summit for September, which would be fantastic as well. And um, we'll make sure that we can send some books over to be able to, to give to, to any people if they think it would be useful. Well, that'd be great. Let's talk about that because I think that that would be useful for everybody there. And uh, obviously, um, you know, the more people learn, the better. The more people uh, grow within the industry, the better. I think the industry needs it. So yeah, thank you for that. Let's let's talk about that. Daniel, thank you very much. Um, you know, uh, I really hope to have a round two at some point with more learnings and talk about more about the book and, and everything that you have going on. So so thank you for joining. And if not earlier, I'll see you in Sevilla. Pleasure. Thank you. And there you have him. Daniel G with a masterclass on how to grow and develop within the football industry. Here are the key takeaways from our enlightening conversation. The best industry leaders get things done, and they embrace being vulnerable. Mistakes happen. It is how you react to them that counts. Also, remember Daniel's framework to become a good sports industry pro. Knowledge building, routine making, building relationships, and then scaling up. 
The three skills that he recommends for aspiring leaders of the industry include patience, be proactive, and building the habit, which ties well with perhaps my favorite lesson from the episode, consistency over intensity. It is a similar concept that James Clear explains in his book, Atomic Habits. You have to play the long game and be sure to dedicate yourself to the craft every single day, even if it is only for a few minutes. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Share your insights on social media. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the podcast with your industry colleagues to keep the conversation going. And remember, you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter where we share industry trends, dynamics, and everything that goes on at our events. You can find the link in the show notes. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the World Football Summit podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You learned something new. And most of all, we hope you have a great day and we hope to see you next time.